1: This is the Simi Sarah Show on demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the radio
2: player app.
3: This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. You're listening
2: to the Mornings with Simi podcast and on today's episode... How would you like to pay as much or as little as you wanted to update your skills during the COVID-19 pandemic? We thought about our
4: network of trainers and we thought about what's going on and we thought, hey, why don't we come up with an initiative that will allow people to take training virtually, but address all of the problems that they would have taking training virtually during this time.
2: How are meat processing facilities staying open after a number of plants have had outbreaks of COVID-19?
5: We understand how important it is to ensure uh, the supply of food to Canadians right across the country. And uh, we're watching with uh, uh, interest and, and concern.
2: And what will the beauty industry look like once measures are eased somewhat and places like hair salons are allowed to operate again?
6: The safety of everybody in that salon, owner, operator, clients, it's all number one.
2: That and much more coming up on the Mornings with Simi podcast. Well, here's an interesting idea. People definitely are looking for jobs out there, right? But what's available might not be something that you are used to doing. So what about upgrading your skills to find that new job? Well, there's this new Toronto-based company called Last Minute Training, and the president is Luis Trahan. And the president says, listen, this is a new idea that he has come up with. He spoke to our Nikki Reitmeyer. It's about letting people upgrade their skills for whatever price that they are willing to pay.
4: So uh, our team and I were sitting around having one of our virtual meetings early on in the, the pandemic. And we were getting a little down about sales and runway. And we just decided that instead of looking at all the negatives, we're going to try to do something positive. And so we thought about our network of trainers and we thought about what's going on and we thought, hey, why don't we come up with an initiative that will allow people to take training virtually but address all of the problems that they would have taking training virtually during this time. And those problems are things like not being able to take a full day of training, and most virtual training is a full day, or being unemployed and not having the money to pay for training. So we put our heads together and came up with the concept of training, which is a way for people to access short skills development training and pay whatever they want, even if that means zero.
1: Really? So somebody could pay a dollar and get access to training that could help them upgrade their skills.
4: Yeah, that's right. There's a course happening uh, this afternoon, for example, on how to write prospecting emails that really, really work. They could pay a dollar. They could pay zero dollars. There's absolutely no requirement
1: to pay anything at all to take the training. So what kind of training courses are available to people?
4: Um, There's all sorts. It's a pretty broad range, mostly skills development, so anything from Microsoft Office and all of the Office Suite, Excel, Word, uh, to uh, data science, machine learning, leadership, uh, remote working. There's a lot of courses on how to work remote, sales and marketing, QuickBooks training, SharePoint, time management, web design, you name it, it's up there. And if it's not up there today, it'll probably be up there tomorrow because we're adding new courses every single day.
1: Well, geez, that's pretty handy, especially in times like these when people are out of work. Soon they're going to be looking for new jobs, perhaps considering changing fields altogether. They want to make sure that they have a really polished resume with some really good stuff on it for when they get back out there into the job market again.
4: Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of small businesses that are not going to survive. There's a lot of people whose jobs are not going to be there when when this COVID epidemic is over. So the idea is upskill now where you can. Uh, so that when the time comes to start applying for for a new role somewhere, you have the skills that you're going to need.
1: All right. I have to ask, though, because this ain't my first rodeo, and usually they say, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. What's the catch here? There has to be some catch if it's free. Uh, there's no catch. Honestly, the trainers
4: who we've teamed up with, all of them realize that this is primarily a passion project, uh, something to do good. Obviously, they're hoping, they're also small businesses who are suffering right now, so they're hoping that a few people contribute uh, and those contributions help cover uh, the administration and cover some of their costs, but really, there's, there's no difference. Trainers don't even know whether you contributed or not. There's no difference in service level and there's no way for them to, to know whether you did. So it's really, truly free.
1: Okay, well, for anybody who wants to upgrade their skills, they want to take one of these courses, they want to pay uh, nothing at all, they want to pay a few bucks, or they want to pay a bit more than that to help out the trainers, uh, where can they go, what can they do?
4: All they have to do is go to www.paywhatyoucan.training and look through the site. They can click on the search for courses, and that'll bring them to the learning hub where all the courses are listed out. They just use the search bar there or the filters, find the course they want, click on register. And uh, after that, they're they're in the course. They'll get an email confirming the registration and all the connection information. If they're a trainer and they want to help by putting courses up, then they can reach out to us through the website as well. There's uh, a page there for trainers to get more information on how to be involved.
3: This is Mornings with Simi. We understand how important it
5: is to ensure uh, the supply of food to Canadians right across the country, and uh, we're watching with uh, uh, interest and, and concern uh, some of the issues facing uh, meat uh, uh, meat producers and uh, and the supply chain across the agricultural industry.
2: That's Prime Minister Trudeau uh, yesterday at his briefing talking about the supply chain involving meat producers right across the country. And there are more concerns, ones that we're going to talk about right now. For instance, there are two additional poultry processing facilities that have now reported employees infected with COVID-19. There's one case in each of the facilities, which are in Porco Coquitlam and Chilliwack, Both remain open at this time, but we'll of course have an update on that coming up at uh, 3 o'clock this afternoon. And then last week there was Superior Poultry in Coquitlam and United Poultry in Vancouver. Those two places reported a combined 80 cases of COVID 19. They are now closed. And of course, we've also been hearing about the largest COVID-19 outbreak in Canada, kind of in one location, and that occurred at a meat processing facility in Alberta. Hundreds of people there also infected with the virus. So what does that mean? This has been happening in the United States. There are concerns there as well about the supply chain when it comes to meat. So to talk more about that, we're joined this morning by Kevin Boone, who is the general manager of the BC Cattlemen's Association. Kevin, thank you for being here.
7: Well, very happy to be here, Sammy.
2: Now, Kevin, what have you heard from producers at this point?
7: Well, certainly there's a lot of concern out there for our producers. And with our uh, industry, there's there's different sectors along the uh, uh, production cycle of, of the cattle. And some are being hit much harder than others uh, with the uh, slowdown in processing, of course, those cattle in the Feedlots uh, that are ready to be processed are the ones that are the most critical, and uh, that we get uh, moving through, and the ones where the producers are having the most impact on them.
2: Do you foresee? Do, do your group? Does your group foresee any issues with the supply chain?
7: Well, of course, there's there's certainly an issue uh, right now at the processing uh, point, and. We know that with the, the way that our supply chain works, when you get a hitch in, in one of the get along sort of deal, and that's that being processing, it uh, both, in this case, backs up the supply. We have a lot of supply waiting there, and, and this becomes a problem. And we have a lot of demand on the other end, but uh, because of the COVID, we're unable to get the processing done. So it's critical uh, that we get those processing plants up and running and that we are able to keep those employees healthy so they can do their very much uh, an essential service uh, for getting through this uh, pandemic.
2: Now, how do you think the industry had been dealing with this? Like, as you mentioned, this is an essential service. So had processing plants, from what you heard and saw, were they were they abiding by this? Were, was everything going fine? Or do you think there were some concerns? Perhaps not everybody going along with this.
7: Um, from the very start, uh, these processing plants worked with industry. Uh, protocols got put in place uh, at the start. Of course, we're dealing with something we've never dealt with before, and the nature of the processing business is that uh, a lot of those employees work very close together, and I know that uh, Cargill, for example, uh, had put in place a lot of measures of uh, partitioning and trying to create the distance required, but of course... Um, We know that uh, when when this uh, spreads, it takes so long for the incubation. It's hard to track. Uh, I think that they've done, uh, had done a lot, and were as prepared as they could be under the circumstances. And now it's uh, adjusting and learning from that. And I believe that when they come back, there will be, more measures in place, and I think there's also the fact that we're able to do more testing now will be very helpful in this.
2: Okay, and do, how soon do you think they will be back online, and will it be a reduced amount of of meat that they can process?
7: Well, the information we're getting right now, and of course this is unconfirmed, but that there there's plans in place for them to open in about a week's time. Uh, they're saying the fourth of of May, so that would be Monday or Tuesday, which would give them fourteen days, so all those employees have been under isolation for those fourteen days, so they should be coming back clean um and so you know I think that we'll see it will take them uh, a few days to get things up and running, but our hope is, and our indications are that they'll have one shift running out of two, which puts them uh, at half capacity, but that um is what they were running at before they went down, so uh, we're really. Uh, dependent and need that, it would be um, if they can keep things going and get to that second shift, that would be optimum.
2: Now, Kevin, do you think this is going to affect prices?
7: Um, well, it already has. Um, we we and, and I think on both ends of the scale, um, we, we're getting reports that there is uh, some increases at the uh, meat shelf uh, in the stores. But on our end, we've seen some uh, huge drops in those prices, especially to those uh, cattle that are ready to go to processing. Uh, they, there's a, a fairly large cost to keeping them uh, every day uh, as well. and then the fact that a lot of these prices, um, you know we saw some very drastic drops where these guys could be seeing five to six hundred dollars worth of uh, losses in these animals already.
2: So does that mean it's going to be, do you think, a little fluctuation perhaps over the next couple of weeks as things get sorted out?
7: Well, they're there's certainly going to take some time to rebuild uh, that, and, and there's still going to be a backup. You've got to remember these closures and slowdowns were uh, typically, if, if things were running pre-COVID, uh, there's an opportunity there or the potential that every day there's 9,000 head processed. Uh, I believe yesterday or you know in, in about what we 're averaging is a thousand to fifteen hundred oh. a day uh so you know that capacity is being reduced um by by a lot, and so these cattle are backing up when you're you're seeing you know six seven thousand head a day that should be going through the system that aren't there's you know that that 's pushing the other the next day's back farther. And they start, they're starting to pile up. And so this ripple effect and these prices uh, will last for, for months ahead of us uh, in our industry. Uh, and so this is why it's critical to get this solved now so we can put them uh, through the system and, and get that normality back. Because this is important to how we rebuild at both economics uh, for the province, for the country, and for our industry. Uh, coming out uh, what I'll call uh, post-COVID uh, or, or as we try and get to the new normal.
2: Well, Kevin, thank you very much for the update.
7: You bet, anytime, me.
2: That's Kevin Boone. He is a general manager with the BC Cattlemen's Association. You heard what he said there, that normally you're talking about processing about 9,000 head of cattle a day. Right now they're doing about 1,000, 1,500. So I'm wondering if you have noticed this. Have you noticed any kind of a price increase For the meat, in particular, the beef that you buy at the grocery store. I know a lot of people very carefully manage their budgets. So if you have seen an increase, noticed any change, let me know so we can talk about it. Simi at cknw.com.
3: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: Now this is a tough time for so many businesses out there. And many of them are trying to pivot. They're trying to find some way to keep their businesses going, to keep their names out there, maybe to make a little bit of money, but just try to keep their foot in it in any way they can. Uh, take, for instance, Colleen O'Farrell. Now, Colleen is a small business owner in Saanich. Her business is a flower company, uh, typically caters to weddings. Well, she started selling flowers from the end of her driveway, just, you know, a way to brighten up people's day, give them some flowers, a way to keep her hand into things. But she was given 30 days to shut the whole operation down uh, by city bylaw because a neighbor had complained about this. Apparently, Saanich has a bylaw that bans roadside farm stands on private property. Well, she talked to our Nikki Reitmeier about this.
1: Out of 20 years in business, this must be the most bizarre and scary wedding season that you've ever experienced.
8: Oh, that, yeah, that pretty much sums it up. It is the weirdest season I've ever, ever had. Weirdest time I've ever had in business in 20
1: years. If we go back quite a few weeks now, what were you first thinking when you heard that wedding season was likely going to be cancelled?
8: I was terrified. I mean, we're small business. Uh, the whole wedding industry is run by small business. There's people that, you know, planners and event um, people that do this as their side gig. And to, you know, have the entire season cancel only to be, you know, most people are pushing this to the next season. Well, next season's going to be crazy and we're not going to be able to keep
1: up. So, to keep your business afloat through these tough times, through the summer months, you had a pretty good idea. What did you set up at home?
8: I pressed my son's lemonade stand into business. <laughs> I literally started a farm cart at the end of my driveway to sell my flowers and bouquets and potted plants and things like that. And it has become a a, a little thriving hub for our community. And it's not just about the money. It's about the community spirit and the the coming together of people in a time when that's what we need the most, really. We We need little bright spots in our lives in this kind of dreary, dark time.
1: It's no stretch of the imagination for me to picture how a little flower stand could operate under the rules of social distancing. However, what, you had a complaint from a neighbor or something and then bylaw stepped in?
8: Yeah, um, bylaw showed up at my door. Apparently there's been a complaint in the neighborhood. They won't tell me who the complaint's from, but I believe it's from an old disgruntled neighbor. It just it's It's so sad that because I am now... Retailing was like normally my business runs from my property, but I have a separate studio space on my property that I run my deliveries from, and like my online orders and my phone orders. But because I am now retailing at the um, at the property, this is this is the conundrum that we're kind of fighting at the moment, and I'm very frustrated.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I can completely understand why you turned your son's lemonade stand into a flower stand at the end of your driveway. Thank goodness that you're actually making a little bit of money doing that so you can stay off the government handouts. But because you're operating a retail location and you have one neighbour who doesn't like what they see, you get shut down. Once again, your small business is at risk.
8: Yep, yep. I mean, there's one in every neighbourhood and there's a thorn in every neighbourhood. But, you know, the... the fact that one voice can, can change an entire family's life, an entire you know community hub, make it disappear, that's pretty sad.
1: So you launched a petition to hopefully get enough support that it encourages the powers that be to change the rules so that you can keep your little flower stand operating, right?
8: That's the ideal plan. Um, I was under the impression that the mayor was going to back Councillor Chambers on a petition to put through an emergency amendment, I'm I'm not sure of the exact terminology, but to uh, allow for farm stands during this incredibly weird COVID time. We're looking for five out of the nine to support us in order to get this petition passed. And so we're asking for letters and community support to try and um, sway the councillors that might be on the fence um, to allow us to operate... and and sell products that we create or craft on our, our property. We don't want, like, you know, people selling jeans out of their trunk and stuff like that. We don't want that to happen, obviously. But, you know, I just really want to be able to support my family with what I'm growing, with what I'm supporting other local farms here as well, and to be able to make it through this interesting time with, you know, no weddings coming this season. Like that's eighty percent of my income
1: for the entire
8: summer. Like I, I don't know what the summer's going to look like at this point.
1: Geez, I can only imagine how scary that must be for you. For anyone who wants to help support you, who wants to sign this petition, where can they find it?
8: You can go to change.org. It is there. I think you just have to type in Saanich Bylaw, and it it will pop up. You can also go to my Facebook page. Um, it's all over that social media, as well as Catherine Little, the the jam stand, the little jam stand from last year. We've kind of joined forces to uh, try and see if we can't get this bylaw changed, at least temporarily, to allow people to be contributing members of society and hopefully stay off CERB and not use the taxpayers' dollars to support ourselves. We want to do that ourselves. Like, I just want to be a contributing member of society.
2: Colleen O'Farrell, her business is called Foxglove Flowers over in Saanich. Now, what do you think about that? If that were in your neighborhood, would you have a problem with it or not?
3: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: Well, a new global news investigation shows that while China may have been kind of downplaying the threat of COVID-19 in other parts of the world, the country at the same time was trying to get as much personal protective equipment or PPP as it possibly could. China used a lot of clandestine Chinese Communist Party networks in Canada as well to ship massive numbers and quantities of safety masks to China, leaving not just Canada but other countries without enough supply. So this will all come as no surprise, of course, to Global News journalist Sam Cooper, who is the man behind this scoop, and he joins us now to talk more about it. Good morning, Sam.
9: Good morning, Simi.
2: Okay, so tell me, what did you find out?
9: Well, we found out uh, a number of things, and I'll break them down for you. Again, uh, the the virus in China, mid-January, their government realizes, it's now clear, that it was so serious that they were afraid they'd run out of safety masks. So they go worldwide looking for uh, the supply they wanted to re-import, and uh, there's a number of methods they use. Some are diplomatic And some are through community groups that are controlled by something we found is called the United Front. It's a powerful agency that seeks to control Chinese immigrant groups worldwide. And the experts tell us it essentially pressures, intimidates or encourages uh, these citizens across the world into the position where they're told your first allegiance is to Chinese Communist Party. So they activated these groups and uh, through groups in Canada, Imported at least 100 tons of uh, safety masks, gowns, disinfectant. So that uh, again, we what happens is the world supply goes to China, and then when it becomes clear that the pandemic uh, is spreading worldwide, countries like Canada are scrambling to try to get safety masks. Now they have to go to and buy China yeah. supply. Uh, one other thing we found. Um, The people in Vancouver that have been following the casino money laundering investigations, I identified that some uh, groups that appear to have been involved in China's safety mask operations in Canada are associated to some of the people uh, investigated in the casino money laundering.
2: Why didn't Canada respond or any other country for that matter respond to what was going on?
9: I think a couple of things are going on. The experts tell us, for one, uh, they say China was not being clear about uh, the risks of spread, the the danger that this virus could spread worldwide. So, for example, the the MP Aaron O'Toole told us because what he calls China's cover-up, countries like Canada were not prepared to take uh, strict measures at airports or borders and they didn't protect their PPE supply. So, again, uh, Mr. O'Toole told us that Uh, through his military sources, he was aware that this operation was going on in China. Some were warned in Canada, we need to protect our supply, and that didn't happen. So uh, there are people, including Mr. O'Toole, that want to investigate those circumstances.
2: So are there more concerns then about these United Front groups and these operations for PPE?
9: That's something... uh, In general, I've been looking at these influence and uh, what our intelligence agency calls espionage networks. Again, this is something that the experts tell us is essentially a political warfare operation run out of Beijing. It's used to influence Canadian leaders in all areas, including all political parties. Their goal is to get Canadian leaders to agree with China's foreign policy. The experts tell us an even more troubling aspect is that Again, uh, this, this agency in Beijing is trying to control Chinese-Canadian groups to get them to fulfill Beijing's strategic goals. Right now, uh, it may be a case that the horse is out of the barn with the PPE, mm-hmm. but the experts tell us uh, there are many more avenues that China attempts to use these united front groups to uh, secure strategic resources in Canada. Uh, and, you know, that could go beyond safety masks.
2: All right. Interesting. Well, Sam, we wait to hear for more from you. Thank you so much. Thanks, me Sam Cooper, Global News investigative journalist. Check out his latest read. You will find it online at globalnews.ca. But raises lots of questions about what did China know and why weren't they sharing it with other countries instead buying up all the personal protective equipment that it possibly could, leaving countries like Canada, and we're not alone in this, the United States as well, competing against
0: each other for
2: what was left available to them when they needed it uh, in late February and into March. So there's more to come on that story for sure. This is Mornings with
3: Simi.
10: I know many people are eager to get their businesses going and I've heard from many of you and many different sectors and individual businesses wondering about approval of their plans. The mechanism for doing that in a coordinated provincial fashion is being formulated. So please wait a few more days and we will be sharing all the detailed information in the coming days.
2: That is Dr. Bonnie Henry, of course. Need a haircut? A little touch up on the hair color maybe? Well, you're not alone, but there is potentially some change on the horizon that you've been waiting for here. Hair salons are working on plans for what reopening might look like. Industry groups right across the country are being asked to consult with provincial health officers on what businesses are thinking about how they might manage to do this? So we thought, let's find out about those plans now. So joining us, executive director of the Beauty Council of Western Canada, Greg Robbins. Greg, thank you so much for being here. Good morning, Simi. So, are you guys consulting with different provincial health officers on this issue?
6: We are actually. We have constantly, um, you know, been in touch with provincial health officers throughout, you know, the entire our existence. And now what we're taking a look at is really what's happening in other jurisdictions, specifically Manitoba and Saskatchewan, which have sort of reopened their economy, so to speak, or at least announced that they would like uh, they have a, a date open. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as well, New Brunswick, PEI and Ontario.
2: So what would it potentially look like? We're used to going into the barbershop or their salon, a bunch of chairs there, sitting down, close contact with somebody as they cut your hair. How do you change that?
6: Great question. I mean, how do you do that? Yeah. You know, we, we, you could, I suppose, attach a brush or a pair of scissors onto the end of a broomstick, but I don't think the results are going to be what you want. What we need to do is really look at some practical measures that we can recommend to the government to allow beauty professionals to get back to work in such a way that, you know, everybody in the salon gets back to work. So not just hairdressers, but skincare professional, waxer and nail techs, and in a way that allows them to be, you know, financially viable through the process.
2: Right, so like cutting down on by 50% the number of people allowed in and all of that, will that make it perhaps not financially viable for a lot of businesses?
6: The real challenge with our industry is that we come in all shapes and sizes, quite literally. we You know, everything from an independent chair operator who is maybe working three days a week to help support her family or his family, right up to a large uh, chain salon owner, which may have 10 or 12 locations, each with, you know, 12 people. So there's a percentage or or a fixed sort of formula doesn't really work. What we're looking at is more around, you know, services and just respecting uh, the provincial health guidelines around COVID-19.
2: Right. So are beauty professionals concerned as well about their own safety?
6: Absolutely. We've had a lot of response out of the Manitoba and Saskatchewan cohort around the the sort of the quickness that the province has said, you know, go back to work. There's nothing wrong. You'll be fine. Many of them are actually refusing to open.
2: Right. So that's something I think that gets underestimated in all this, doesn't it, Greg, is that you can say you're open, but does that mean that your customers or even your workers want to open?
6: Absolutely. Safety is primary, is paramount. If, If you go outside these days, Uh, You know, everyone's socially distancing. We're all keeping away from one another. Nobody wants to get sick or get somebody else sick. An asymptomatic transfer is a potential. So, yeah, absolutely, in a confined space, in a salon, certainly, you know, the, the, the safety of everybody in that salon, owner, operator, clients, it's all number one.
2: So what are we talking about here? Are we talking about masks, gloves for both the customer and the person who's doing the work? Yeah, everything
6: that's recommended by Dr. Bonnie Henry and her team and everybody around her as well is really what the proto, you know, the protocols we're looking at, we're going to build this out from a, a scientific, and we have been building this out from sort of a scientific research based approach that that really tackles airborne the airborne virus and of course as well hand contact as well um masks are are on the list they they do pose a bit of an impractical thing you certainly can't do a facial with a mask on um and and even those little rubber bands that go around either the back of your head or behind your ears do pose a problem for stylists you know navigating around them touching them how do you take that mask off However, in all likelihood, we will probably be, you know, having to to go with masks on both client and uh, and, and staff.
2: Yeah. How is all of this going to work?
6: (laughs) It's the big question that's popping around these days.
2: Okay. So maybe not facials, right? Maybe not salon services, but is there a gradual way to get back into this?
6: Yes, absolutely. So we're looking at the entire industry. We're trying not to leave people out. One of the challenges and big concerns we've heard out of Manitoba and Saskatchewan is that those jurisdictions have said, you know, if you're a hairdresser, you can go back. Well, the esthetician, the nail tech, the waxer, these, you know, typically young women, entrepreneurial, maybe just starting out their career and having to pay off lease and have, you know, costs that they can't necessarily variableize. So how do we get those people back? So it may be, for example, with waxers, we say, you know, leg waxing is allowed, but upper lip is not proximity mm. to the mouth and closeness to the face. They're trying to strike a balance between safety and, you know, financial viability.
2: Is there any jurisdiction that you know of that has managed to do this yet
6: not yet not yet um there are some great proposals coming out of our sister association oh, no, our our related association out of uh, Prince Edward island and new brunswick uh, very sensible approaches hopefully the government will adopt those guy uh, those recommendations um but so far it seems to be a bit of a fling the door open and you know try and keep six feet apart
2: right i guess it'll depend on the size of the salon too that you're used to going to
6: there are lots of little tiny confined spaces, you know, places like yeah. down in Gastown and in smaller cities. Some of the spaces are very small. And the reason is, is that this isn't a high margin business. You're looking at five to seven percent possibly. So you're trying to reduce your overhead on, on the rent and your floor space. So, yeah, space is uh, I mean, some salons are big and spacious, but many are kind of cramped and small.
2: All right. We'll see how it goes. Greg, thank you. Thank you, Simi. Greg Robinson, Beauty Council Western Canada Executive Director, uh, talking about the plans that they are working on, essentially to get salons open again in the near future. Now, as he mentioned, there, as Greg did, it, it's a, it's like a mess, right? It's a, all over the place. It's you've got big salons, small salons. How do you? practice social distancing? How do you make sure that not only the customer feels okay with this, but that the employee feels okay with this too? So what does reopening potentially look like? We thought we would talk to a salon owner about that. And that's a more kind of boots on the ground perspective. So joining us now is Michael Gibson, the co-owner of Brush Salon with two locations in Vancouver. Michael, thanks for being here.
5: Yes, thank you so much for having me.
2: So this must be a very difficult time for you, um, just being shut down and closed and kind of waiting to hear what's going to happen?
5: Oh, of course. We've been, I know a lot of our guests have been absolutely desperate to get their hair done. And I just try to answer as politely as possible with a simple no. And it's just funny because we have a massive neon sign at both locations that says Girl Roots for Trees. And seeing as that's our salon slogan, I think we can all feel, feel their pain right now.
2: I guess so. So have you been getting like offers saying, I don't care how much I have to pay. I want you to come to my house and give me a haircut.
5: We've had a few of those. Yes. <laughs>
2: that must be hard to turn down in this, in this whole environment, Michael.
5: Yeah. Well, it's just the safety precautions. We have to make sure that we're doing our part to flatten the curve as much as possible.
2: I think everybody has been extraordinary here. But as we talk about reopening, have you thought about that? Like what your salon might look like?
5: Definitely. So I've kind of just been following basically what the beauty council has been saying. And I've also been looking at Saskatchewan and Manitoba as examples to see kind of some of their structure and what they're going to be implementing because they are opening quite soon. Um, Some of the things that we've done or that I'm going to be doing is just undergoing a deep and clean uh, with the entire salons with both locations and making sure that we have masks, masks provided for both uh, the client and uh, the stylists, and having actual face shields for um, the stylists to wear during their services, and making sure uh, that we check in with the clients to make sure that they are well before performing any service. Because as you can imagine, being in that close proximity, it's not really possible to practice perfect yeah. social, social distancing.
2: So, will you have the same number of chairs? Do you think will you cut down on that? Make more room in the salon?
5: Yeah, so what I've been thinking is obviously you need to have a proper amount of distance in between each chair. Mm
2: -hmm.
5: Um, So we're lucky because our mirrors do uh, move horizontally versus like having individual stations. So I know salons that do have individual stations, it's going to be more difficult for them to open. They'll have to have a spread out between probably two chairs. So what we're going to be doing is I'm going to measure the amount of distance in between each chair to make sure it's perfect and aligns with what BC provincial legislation is providing us. And then I'll probably uh, remove some chairs from the salon to make sure that we have enough space.
2: So you won't be able to fit as many customers in?
5: No, definitely not.
2: Does that still make the business viable, even if you only have, say, 50% of the number of people in there?
5: Yeah, that's very tricky because, yeah, as the VD council just me- mentioned, uh, we are very low margin business and, and on a good day. So some salons are still not even profiting. So having that big cut in the amount of guests that are able to come in is going to be a big hit for the salon. So,
2: Yeah, that's a tough that's- one.
5: I know I'm hoping that the government is going to still be providing some assistance in terms of wage subsidy to help us kind of get by, but I'm not too sure what that's going to look like just yet.
2: And so do you have any indication about when this might be or when you should be getting things ready for, Michael?
5: Well, we've kind of started just like writing out a list of all the things that we want to do. And then once we know exactly um, what we need to do from our provincial legislation, we'll be able to start rolling that out and having a meeting with our team over a Zoom call and sending out an email of all their expectations Maybe they might need to be doing some uh, training or certification course in order to make sure that they are um, knowledgeable and understand exactly how to uh, do the cleaning process
2: right. between each client. So a lot of work to do ahead. Yeah.
5: Oh,
2: 100%. I'm sure you're looking forward to it, though. <laughs> yeah. I
5: I am looking forward to being back with the team, even though the circumstances are not quite going to be the same. Um, And the communication level will probably not be quite the same between us and the guests because we are going to be wearing masks. And I think we'll probably have to keep our communication level at a bare minimum in order to uh, do our part.
2: All right, Michael, listen, good luck with the process. Thank you very much. That Thanks is for having me. Anytime. That's Michael Gibson, co-owner of Brush Salon. They have two locations in Vancouver, and they are well underway in planning as to what a return to work might look like. But as you heard him describe, very different. I think people are, in some cases, so desperate for a haircut that they'll be like, yes, just whatever, just open up so I can make an appointment. But he's describing a very different hair salon than what you would have had a couple of months ago. Face shields for the people who are cutting your hair, masks for everybody. You know, fewer seats in the salon available at the same time. Uh, so yeah, it's going to be um, interesting to watch that unfold. Hair salons will be going back to work faster in other provinces right now. Looks like PEI, Manitoba, Saskatchewan getting plans underway. BC's plans, we'll hear more about coming up next week. Now, if you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. The thing is, this is going to be, for now anyway, the new normal when things start to open up. That's the next stage of this thing. I was reading yesterday about how even Disney World, the theme parks, right? They are, they're thinking about reopening too. they're going to look very different. There's a task force that has laid out guidelines for how these theme parks in Orlando might be able to reopen. They're going to run at 50% capacity. With strict social distancing rules, once you're inside the theme park, so think about Disney World. In that case, right, only 50% capacity at any given time. Uh, visitors will have to park their own cars, check themselves into hotels. Uh, they'll have, um, you know, hand sanitizer everywhere. Uh, all sorts of different things, spacing in the lineups for the rides, and all of that. It's going to be a very, very different situation. Like as I said, you want to weigh in. Send me at cknw.com.
3: This is Mornings with Simi. They were on their way back with uh, supplies, and uh,
9: they got caught, caught uh, trapped and in, 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 as the water rose. And um, he, was, uh, he was trapped in rising water.
2: That's just the story of some of what is going on right now in Fort McMurray is if they don't have enough going on and haven't had enough to deal with over the last few years in Fort McMurray. Right now, they're dealing with flooding. Thousands of people have been evacuated. One person has died because of that flooding in the northern part of Alberta. We're going to find out why that is. Joining us now, Sarah Medina, global news journalist in Edmonton. Sarah, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So what exactly is the problem in Fort McMurray? I have, I understand it has something to do with some kind of an ice jam.
11: And I know in BC, they, ice jams are kind of common. You see them every year uh, in some areas when I was living in the north. So if you're familiar with them, you kind of know what they look like. But here in Fort McMurray, I've never... I've never seen an ice jam like this. It was 25 kilometers long, but as of yesterday, it did shrink down to 13 kilometers, so that is huge. But what was happening is the water was pushed out. It went into the downtown site. It flooded businesses and homes, and now, as of right now, people about 13,000 people have been evacuated from the downtown and they can't return home to see what the damage is. Uh, But yeah, this, this river is relentless, but we are seeing some movement and we did see the river levels go down yesterday as well.
2: Okay. Well, that's good though, but you still have this, as you say, 13 kilometer long ice jam there. Could they not break it apart? I mean, what's been done to try to mitigate this? Well, basically, they're leaving it up to Mother Nature.
11: Uh, the province, this was asked to to the province, but because it was so huge and they didn't know if they broke it up what, or blasted it, that was what was put to the province, why don't you just blast this ice jam? They said, we don't know what will happen, So, and and it could make things worse. So they've let it go to Mother Nature, they're letting that kind of melt on its own what we're seeing right now is it's not what you might imagine the ice gem is dark it is muddy uh two days ago it looked solid it looked like you could walk on it and uh but now you are starting to see that water start to peek through some chunks of river are definitely flowing and you can see that debris flowing in the water as well
2: boy sarah i mean <laughs> could the people of fort mcmurray have to go through it, like one more thing it feels like over the last few years
11: Yeah, so four years ago, they had the wildfires, and um, that was huge. The whole town was evacuated, and you can still see, uh, you know, the burnt trees, and people here are also talking about how When they evacuated their homes, it's bringing back trauma and memories from when they had to rush and leave because of the fires. A little bit of the difference here is that they had some time to think about what they could pack because it's not the same urgency as when a fire is coming at you. There was rising water, but people were able to pack bags and kind of think about that. Um, But they don't know when they'll be able to return home. And as of right now, there's no dollar amount on the damage that has been done to to the homes and the structures, but we do know that there's been 1,230 homes affected and damaged by the floods. And just to put that in perspective, it's just about half of what was affected during the wildfires uh, in 2016. So it's it's a huge loss.
2: Yeah, not only that, I mean, would these potentially have been... You're talking about a community that probably was just starting to feel like things were getting back to normal.
11: Yes, and it is so sad. I can't even... (laughs) It's hard to put into words, but when you're talking to the people, yesterday I was talking to an evacuee who said, I feel guilty because she can see her house and she sees it's not underwater, but her brother's house, two blocks away, is. And she feels guilty that that her house is okay. And she said, why is one family okay and another not okay and so there's that guilt and then she's talking about how stressful it's been a lot of and and to add to all of this right we're dealing with the pandemic and also low oil prices so a lot of people here are facing unemployment and this is just another hardship that they do have to go through.
2: Oh, man. Okay, so when do they uh, expect this to kind of die down a little bit? You said it's already been cut in half, so to speak, that ice jam. Uh, Next, is the warm weather going to hang around? Uh, It is...
11: A little bit cloudy today and there is some rain forecasted, uh, but the hope is that warm weather will aid. Uh, there is no set timeline and the hope is that it peaks around the weekend and then things are expected to get better from there. But as and crews are downtown on the site and working on recovery measures. Uh, but as of right now, there's no set timeline on when people can return home and even see what
2: what's happened. Oh, those poor people. Uh, Sarah, thank you. Thank you very much. That is Sarah Comadina, a global news journalist in Edmonton, talking about the situation in Fort McMurray. I can't even imagine what those poor residents are going through, right? The absolutely devastating wildfires in 2016. Uh, Obviously, oil prices having a huge impact there as well, people losing their jobs. And now you've got this huge ice jam. It started out as being 25 kilometers long. Now, as Sarah told us, it's about 13 kilometers long, but it's caused major flooding. And it has forced about 13,000 people out of their homes, uh, right in that downtown area. of Fort McMurray, uh, and they're waiting. As Sarah pointed out, they just don't know. They have to let Mother Nature take its course here. There's nothing they can do. Alberta officials have said they're afraid that if they try to break up the ice jam or blow it up, uh, disrupt it somehow, that they're just going to make things worse with kind of the sudden onrush of water rather than waiting and letting it happen gradually. Uh, But yeah, just really, really tough for Fort McMurray right now, and we will be keeping you up to date on what is happening there.
3: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: Everybody deserves to have a good time on their birthday. It's been hard, though, right, with this whole COVID-19 thing and social distancing and all of that happening. But that didn't stop a group of people from making sure that there was a very special birthday that got celebrated in the west end of Vancouver this week. You might have seen this story in the news. You had Vancouver police on horseback, you had squad cars, you had a fire truck, you had neighbors, you name it. They all showed up to wish Margaret McDonald a happy 102nd birthday. Here's some of what it sounded like you The weather was great, and Margaret got to see all of these people out there just for her 102nd birthday. But, boy, I was wondering, how do you pull something like that off? So we thought, let's find out about that. Catherine Houston joins us now. This is Margaret's daughter, and she's going to tell us all about Margaret as well. Good morning, Catherine.
10: Hi there. How are you?
2: I'm good, thank you. You must have been so pleased with how it turned out.
10: Uh, Overwhelmed. I couldn't believe it.
2: (laughs) How did you get the word out?
10: Well, you know, the Mounted Police... uh, patrols our, our area. So I asked them, can you show up? <laughs> 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 and that's all it took.
2: You're kidding uh, me. That's all it uh, took?
10: Pardon me? That's all it took? Seriously. I Well, like I had gone to, I went to our neighbors, I put notices in their doors, I asked them to come out onto the balcony at 11 o'clock and, um, you know, make noise, cheer, clap. I then also spoke to the mounted unit, but did I, I like, honestly, when we, <laughs> we walked out, I was like, oh my God. Because they ended up getting their, you know, other officers and they got the fire truck and they even got Kaylee. Kaylee is a saxophone player in the West End who's been doing a lot of the um, yeah. seven o'clock cheer. At, you know, that, have you heard about yes, that? Yes, of course. So, <laughs> and we were like, I came out and then balloons, our building manager put balloons everywhere. I mean, it was amazing. Unreal. How did your mom react to this? She was so, well, first of all, she was overwhelmed and she was just beyond happy. Like just beyond, she just she just couldn't believe it, and I and I think it's finally, it's finally sinking in, like two days later. I'll but bet. It,
2: <laughs> I, I want now. I want to learn all about Margaret because 102 years old. Boy, there must be some stories of life there. And I understand that your mom also, uh, you know, worked performed for Canada. Did her service yeah. during the Second World War?
10: Yeah, yeah. She was uh, an air force officer in the in the uh, war. And she um, she had a social work degree, so that was really her role, and it was a pretty new um, field in, at that time. So she looked after a lot of people, and one of the one of the groups that she's most proud of is that she greeted the war brides. Like they had come from this war torn country, they're moving to a new country, they're meeting all new families. So my mom would travel across Canada, setting them up and helping them out, and making sure, checking up on them, making sure they're okay.
2: Wow, and I understand she also did some work with, you know, PTSD, and this is before we actually called it PTSD.
10: Yeah, yeah, she did, like, anything that would require um, social services, uh, she she did. I mean, like, families had to be told sometimes about their their loved ones who, who wouldn't come back or, I mean, just the whole range of, of um, counseling, you know, that would be, that would go into that Um
2: yeah, what a, so what an experience!
10: That. She, uh, she um, also she got all uh, the women at that time to sew um, toys for children in, yeah. in England, and she sent that through to the right. So, yeah, she was she's she's definitely somebody who served her country.
2: Now, Catherine, did your mom talk about this when you were growing up? Like, how did you hear about these stories?
10: She didn't. Actually, that's a really good question because she didn't talk about them. Um, I'm hearing about it more now. Now that she's really older. And now that she's been living with me, um, and you know, we, we, she's, yeah. yeah, Isn't uh, that
2: weird? So you also had one of those moments that I think all kids have when they hear from their parents. Well, where did that come from? What What do you mean? How am I hearing about this now?
10: Yeah, exactly. I think like a few years ago, I'd say about 15 years ago, I say it's a few years, but 15 years ago or so she started writing things down about her family and about her life for us. And yeah, and that's when it was like, what?
2: That's amazing. And so your mom lives with you now, is that right?
10: She does. She uh she another another accomplishment. She was given a few a few uh weeks, maybe months to live after uh congestive heart failure. She came and moved into my one bedroom apartment and
2: How <laughs> eight long years later. Oh. That's great, though. Isn't that a riot. It is a riot. So she was had a short bill of health there from doctors, and it's been eight years since. And, well, she must really love living with you. That's what it is.
10: And I think she, you know, I think she loves living. I think she loves living, and she's just uh, she's and she's so loved. She gets a lot of love from people. Um, she has a, a friend of hers, her former bridge partner, who like obviously can't play bridge anymore, but he calls at ten o'clock, ten thirty every morning, and sings.
2: Oh, <laughs> Your mom just sounds like an amazing person to have all these people who want to do things for her. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much. I'm so glad to hear she was happy about it. And great job, Catherine. Thank you. Have, have a great day. day. Bye now. Bye. That's Catherine Houston. She's a local writer and she is the daughter of Margaret MacDonald. If you were wondering what was that all about in the West End this week when you had fire trucks there, and you had the Vancouver police on horseback, you had squad cars, you had neighbors, you had musicians out there, and it was all to wish Margaret McDonald a happy 102nd birthday. What an amazing thing that they managed to pull together. I'm so glad Margaret loved it.